You know, they, they say, at least, I don't know who they are, but people say that in this we have more technology than all of the computing power that put the first astronauts on the moon. It's amazing to think about, isn't it? I mean, in, in this thing. Now, if you told me, hey, take this iPhone, go back to 1969 when man landed on the moon, and get to the moon with this thing, I'm not going to be able to do it because there's a lot more that goes into it. But still, the, the power that you hold in your hand is amazing. Think about this. If, if you fast forward, I'm not going to try to pretend to do the math, but from 1969, what? Uh, that's 30, no, that's not 31 years. I'm 36, and I was not born in 1969. How many years is that? Somebody that's math-ish. 51, thank you. Yeah, not 31, 51. That's what I was going for. 51 years. Fast forward 51 years from now, and imagine what you carry around in your back pocket makes what Elon Musk just strapped two guys to and sent them to the space station look like a child's toy. Like that's amazing, isn't it, right? And here's what I do with this. And maybe some of you are like me on this. What I do with this is I change my wallpaper on the background and I, I play with apps like Twitter and I, I, I post stuff and I install beta software because I want the, the latest and greatest and I just want it to look cool, right? Like that's what I do with the technology that beats the technology that put people on the moon. Some of you though do way more than that. Some of you are looking at me going, dude, you install beta software on your phone? You are a brave man. Like when I tell Pastor Rod, he always knows when the beta software is coming out, he comes to me and he's like, you're going to do this, aren't you? Don't do it. You shouldn't do it. It's going to break something on your phone. It's going to break something on your laptop. Something's not going to work. Don't do the beta. But it hooks me because I watch the keynote and I'm like, I want that. When is that going to come out? And so I, I do it. I install it. And then I go to Pastor Rod and I tell him, look, it's so cool. You should put this on your computer. You should put this on your phone. But see, Pastor Rod and I are different in so many different ways. So many ways. Good ways. We complement each other. I love Pastor Rod. But Pastor Rod is what we might call a power user. You guys heard that phrase? So Pastor Rod does things with his phone that if I spent the next 30 years studying my phone, I would not be able to figure out how to do. Pastor Rod is so organized and detailed that the man keeps a digital calendar and a paper calendar. And they're the same thing but it's like a backup of a backup in case something goes down, right? I mean, he's that, that detail-oriented. He's got all kinds of apps and extensions on browsers, so he's like, I cannot install the beta because if I install the beta, it's gonna break all that stuff. Pastor Rod uses his phone, his laptop, to the full extent. Well, probably not, but way more than I use it. And see, what we're here to talk about tonight, what I want us to talk about tonight, as we've been talking so much about faith in this series, and we're gonna talk more about faith tonight, so I want to talk to you and I about what it would look like for us to be power users when it comes to our faith and why that's so important and why I think so many of us treat our faith the way that I treat my phone. It's like, well, let me take a selfie and post it about how I'm a Christian. Oh, let me send out a tweet with my faith about how I love Jesus. And we're not tapping into really what faith is meant to do in our lives, which when we consider the cost of what it took Jesus to secure the, the salvation that you and I get to enjoy. He's given us the faith to believe in that, and that faith is meant to do so much more than so many of us use it for. So that's where we're going. Galatians chapter 3. Grab your Bibles, turn over to Galatians chapter 3, make your way there on your device if you've got that. You can go to the moon and you can read your Bible. 
Galatians chapter 3. We started Galatians chapter 3 last week. We're going to pick back up verse 6. It's in the middle of Paul's argument here. But we talked about last week that idea that it's, it's foolish to rely on works and not rely on, on faith because it wasn't by works that God saved you. It wasn't by works that you're being perfected. It wasn't by works that you got the spirit. And Paul's continuing his argument here. Look at verse six. It says here, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we received the promised spirit through faith. Paul's been talking a lot about all kinds of different subjects so far in Galatians. He's talked about Peter. He's talked about this group called the Judaizers that are introducing a different gospel. And he said, hey, not that there's a different gospel, but some people want you to believe that. He's talking to the, the people in the church. He's talking about himself, his own testimony. And now all of a sudden we've got Abraham. And now we have to ask ourselves the question, why in the world is Paul going back to Abraham? Well, when you consider key Old Testament figures, Abraham is, is up near the top of the, the key Old Testament figures. I mean, we may be able to list a few others like Moses, like David, like Daniel, but Abraham's going to make the list. And as Paul is writing to a group of Christians, some of them former Jews, but all of them facing the threat of Jews coming into them saying, hey, you know what? Jesus isn't enough. You also need the, the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. Paul's going to say, you know what? Let's go back to the, the Jew of all Jews, maybe, and aside from Christ, earthly speaking, Abraham, Father Abraham, right? Let's go back to Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham for a second. He was a key Old Testament figure. He was significant to, to Israel. He lived before Moses, which is key to Paul's argument because God gave what to Moses? The law. So Paul goes to Abraham who predates Moses and he goes to Abraham and he says, what about Abraham? He says, we know that Abraham was declared righteous according to his what? Faith. Faith. So let's go through a timeline really quick. Genesis 1 through 2 covers what? Creation, right? God creates the world. Seven days, six days, rests on the seventh. Then you have Genesis chapter 3, and Genesis chapter, chapter 3 records the what? The fall, right? Sin enters the world. Before Genesis chapter 3, there's no sin. You say, for how long? We don't know. We don't know how long Adam and Eve existed in the Garden of Eden before Satan came after them as the serpent. It was long enough for Satan to rebel against God in the heavenly places, because when God declares everything to be very good after creating man in Genesis chapter one and two, when he says, it, and it was very good, that means all of creation, including the heavenly places and the heavenly beings. So there's some time that's passed here. This isn't like the next day Eve was like, yeah, let's go break the law. But still, 
Adam and Eve in chapter three, they fall. And I say they intentionally because Adam should have been leading well. He should have been there with Eve. He should have been teaching, instructing, guiding, leading. So this was a joint effort, a joint endeavor. Plus Adam was entrusted by God with the spiritual leadership, not just of Eve, but we know of all humanity from Romans chapter five. So they fall, sin enters the world. Well, sin enters the world. And in, in Genesis, that's Genesis 3, 6, I believe is where the fall takes place, where Eve actually reaches out, grabs the fruit of the tree and eats. Nine verses after Genesis 3, 6, guess what's on the scene for the first time in the Bible? The gospel. Genesis 3, 15 is called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium, which means the first good news. Because in Genesis 3.15, God says this to Eve. He says, hey, look, there's going to be an offspring that comes from you that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, the serpent's going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. You guys know who the offspring that comes from Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent is? Jesus. In fact, in Luke's gospel, in his genealogy, in Luke chapter 3, Luke is given that whole list of names. And sometimes we tune those out, but don't tune them out because you miss really cool things. Luke takes Jesus all the way back to Adam. Why does Luke go all the way back to Adam with Jesus? To show that Adam, or that Jesus rather, is the descendant of Eve who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Remember that because we'll come back to that. So Genesis chapter three, the fall, but then Genesis chapter three, 15, God is promising already nine verses after the fall. He's promising the gospel, the good news. Genesis four, you've got this fight between these two brothers named what? Cain and Abel. Cain rises up and kills Abel. It's the first murder in the Bible. First murder in history. Then in Genesis chapter five, you've got this genealogy. And it's the genealogy of uh, the descendants of, of, of Adam and Eve. Then in Genesis chapter 6, you've got this weird thing where the sons of God come down to the, the, the daughters of earth, these angels cohabitating with women, and then you've got the Nephilim, these giants. But then in J Genesis chapter 6, you've got the world looking pretty bad. And what happens? God comes to this guy named what? Noah. And he tells Noah, hey, you know what, Noah? Things are not going well. And so here's what I'm going to need you to do. I'm going to need you to get some wood. I think it was gopher wood if I remember the song right. And I'm going to need you to build a massive, gigantic boat and get two animals of every kind and put them on the boat because I'm going to flood the world and, and start over with you and your family. And Noah believed God and actually became a preacher of righteousness. Noah became a, an evangelizer to the people around him, preaching that they needed to repent of their sins because judgment was coming. But what did they do? They ignored him. They laughed at him. Well, the flood comes. And in Genesis 6 through 9, we find the flood. But then tucked into the flood, tucked into this destruction, tucked into this judgment, just like in Genesis chapter 3, we find a, a promise. And we find this Noahic covenant. And we find this rainbow that shows up that God says, I'm going to hang this in the sky as a promise to you that never again will I ever judge the world by what? Water. I will never flood the earth again. Genesis 6 through 9. Genesis 10, you've got a genealogy. It's the genealogy of the descendants now of Noah because God's starting over again with Noah. And so it's going down and specifically through this guy named Shem. And then in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, you've got these people that get together and they're like, you know what? We want a name for not God. We want to create a name for us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a massive tower and then we're going to step back and be like, look how awesome that is and how awesome everybody's going to think we are. And at the time, everybody had a common language. 
So they were all able to get together and, and get along with each other and everything was going well. Well, God comes down and says, you know what? I, I don't really like that plan. So I'm going to make all of you speak different language and confuse you. And you're all going to spread out and populate the earth and gather according to your languages. And so he does that. It's the Tower of Babel. And then you get to Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. And here we have another list of names. This time starting with Shem and moving downward. And it ends with this guy named Abram, who would eventually become Abraham. And then this Genesis chapter 12. This is where we've been driving at. Genesis chapter 12, you've got the call of Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And this is where things get significant for us. This is where Paul enters in. And this covenant that God makes with Abraham is found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Open up there. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Go over there with your Bibles. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So look at the preface, the table of contents, the abbreviations, that here's the different guys that translated this Bible and why they did that, that nobody ever reads. And you feel bad for the people that wrote it because they were proud of themselves and their mom was proud of them, but nobody pays attention to it. Get to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Somebody's going to feel bad and read that tonight and be like, look, I read it. I read it. I felt bad for their moms. Genesis chapter 12. Okay, so let's actually pick up in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram. Okay, now is Abram a Christian? No. Is Abram a Jew? No, because there's no such thing. Abraham is living in a land called Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham is a pagan. Abraham is a Gentile at this point in time. God calls Abram and he says, hey, Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your family and your father's house. Leave everything you know, Abram, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Here it is, verse three. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember that phrase, because it's going to come up again. But this covenant that God makes with Abraham, it involves three things. It involves land, and that's the land of Israel. God says, look, I'm going to give them the promised land, okay? They will have a place. They are going to have something that is a territory. God was telling Abram, leave the land that you know. Leave your family land. Leave everything that's familiar to you. But hey, you know what, Abram? I'm going to give you and your descendants from here on out a specific plot of land. We know that today as, as Israel, the promised land. I'm going to give you a land. And then he says this, I'm also going to give you not just land, but I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to make your offspring, he says in Genesis 15, 4 through 5. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram and said, this man shall not be your heir. Talking about one of his uh, children that he had had with a, a slave woman. Or, no, sorry, one of the, the members of his family. Not, not that. One of the members of his family. He said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. And number the stars. If you are able to number the stars, count the stars. Then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. So God is promising him not only land, but also now offspring. You're going to have descendants that are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's an amazing promise. I don't know how many stars in the sky are, there are out there. You can ask Elon. Elon might know. But it's not just land and offspring. And then there's this final part of the covenant, which is that there's going to be blessing. God says, look, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And he says, look, I'm, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, God says, I'm going to curse. But then he says this. He says, I'm going to bless everyone through you. 
now hopefully we're starting to see a little bit about why Paul's going back to Abraham. Verse six, just as Abraham believed God, Galatians 3, 6, just as Abraham, this guy, believed God, believed what? The promise that we've been talking about, this covenant, believed God and God counted that faith to Abraham as righteousness. In Genesis 15, starting in verse five, I read part of it, the the promise of the offspring in verse seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abraham said this to the Lord in verse eight. He said, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to Abraham, bring me a heifer that is three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brings them all these, and they, they make a covenant together. God swears an oath to Abraham and says, you can know because I'm promising it to you. And the text says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith in this covenant was faith in God's promise his faith in in God's promise to deliver him from something that even though Abraham was not a follower of God when he was called, it was uh, something that Abraham was aware that people grew old and that people died and that people sinned against each other and that there was brokenness in the world. And now God calls Abraham and says, look, Abraham, I'm going to do something through you that's going to be a blessing to all people. And Abraham's beginning to understand that, okay, this is the God who's going to undo what's been done. This is the God who's going to begin to mend what's been broken. This is the God that's going to be able to solve the problem that all of humanity has faced from the very beginning. And I'm going to trust him. I don't know what that's going to look like. Abraham didn't know the name Jesus, but he believed that God was going to be faithful to his promise. And that faith is credited to Abraham as righteousness. And Paul wants us to think about that. Paul explains this further in Romans chapter four, Romans four, 18 through 25. He's talking about Abraham again. Paul says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should be the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be when he was looking up at the stars. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Think about that. A guy who's a hundred years old, no kids. God says, I'm gonna make a nation out of you. Okay. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah, his wife's womb. She was unable to have children and she was just as old. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul's saying here, look, if Abraham Abraham believed God to make a nation. And God said, look, I'm going to count that as righteousness to you. He's going to count it to us as righteousness if we believe in Jesus Christ, that he died from our sins, for our sins, and rose from the dead. So Paul's pointed to Abraham and saying, look to Abraham. Abraham is the model of what faith in action looks like. And God responds by crediting it to us, crediting it to us as righteousness. Paul says in verse seven, back in Galatians chapter three, know then that it is those of faith This is huge, the statement that he's about to make. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. See, that's a paradigm shift. Because before this, if you would ask them or if you would ask a Jew, hey, 
who are the offspring of Abraham, the children of Abraham? They would have said Jews. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and the Jews are all of them, period. That's how that song went for a long time. But now you grew up singing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and what? I am one of them. Hey, oh wait, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Left arm, right, nobody else? Okay. See, this was a paradigm shift because Paul's saying, look, it's not about your blood anymore. In fact, Paul's saying it's never been about your blood. Nobody has been saved because they were born with the right DNA. Nobody has been saved because they were born into the right nationality. Nobody has been saved because they were part of a nation or a people. You are saved and you always have been saved. Every single person has been saved only by faith alone. And that's why Paul says it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. There's this guy who was alive a while ago whose name is Rich Mullins. And unfortunately, he died in a car accident too young because he was a great songwriter. And he's written a song or he wrote a song called Sometimes by Faith. And if you guys have downloaded or listened to uh, Shane and Shane's new album, Vintage, that song is on that album. Rich Mullins wrote that. And there's a line in there that is just simple, but yet at the same time, so cool. And it goes like this. It says, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. So cool to think about that, right? That as Abraham is looking up into the sky and God says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he's looking up there and the song says, and not literally, don't go too far on that, but the song is just pondering that one of those stars up there that God's talking about, that's me because of my faith in Christ, because of what Paul just said, it's those who are of faith that are children of Abraham, that are children of the promise that God made to Abraham. See, you and I have been grafted into the people of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, that the church has been brought in now to the people of God, that we are now part of this whole thing that he was doing, that he began with Israel, that he began with Abraham, that he began with them. We're now a, a part of that because why? Because of faith. Because God's been doing the same thing from the very beginning. Remember, just nine verses after the fall, the gospel is on the scene. And there throughout the Old Testament, there are these gospel booms, these cadences that are just rhythmic throughout the Old Testament, promising Jesus, 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 Jesus. And it's this look to the future, look to what God is going to do, that he's going to redeem people. And now we look back at the cross and we say, there's Jesus. It was faith then, it's faith now. And that's why Paul says this in verse eight. Look at it. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's you and me. Unless you were born in Israel and you're an Israeli Jew in here, then you don't qualify on this. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the what? The gospel. The gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, I talked about Luke's genealogy earlier, right? Then in Luke chapter 3, he goes back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, he starts with who? Abraham. Matthew starts his genealogy with Abraham. Why does Matthew start his genealogy with Abraham? If Luke could have gone back to Adam with Jesus... Matthew could have gone back to Adam with Jesus. 
But Luke and Matthew are different. And Matthew starts with Abraham. Matthew is writing his gospel largely to a Jewish audience, okay? That was his original target, were Jews. And he starts with Abraham. Why does he start Jesus's genealogy with Abraham? Because of Genesis 12, 3. And because of what Paul's writing here in Romans, or in, sorry, in, in Galatians 3, 8. That the gospel preached the gospel, that, that the scriptures preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you will all the families of the earth be blessed. How? Through one of your offspring, Abraham. Who's that offspring? Jesus. That's an amazing verse. Amazing. Preach the gospel beforehand. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3. Jesus is the one who's going to bring blessing. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And it's always been salvation by faith and faith alone that has saved anyone ever. Period, end of story. That's why he says in verse nine, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Don't have time to turn there, but Romans chapter four verses one through 13. Maybe write it down. Maybe you can go there in small groups. Romans four, one through 13. It's a fascinating chapter because uh, Paul's talking more about Abraham and he sets up this argument and he says in verse one, he says, what, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He said, what is, what did Abraham really gain according to what he brought to the table? And the implied answer there is what? Nothing. He says nothing. And he goes on to say, because if, if we work and and we earn something for our works, then we've, we've merited that. That's, that's something that we can boast in. Paul's like, no, no, we can't boast in anything. And he goes on to say this. He goes, you know, let's, let's talk about circumcision, which we won't, don't worry. But he says, let's talk about that because that's a, that's a hot button issue. It was a hot button issue in Galatians. That's what they wanted the Galatian believers to do. They said, hey, look, you need to do this in order to be fully accepted by the church. Paul goes, let's talk about Abraham. Was Abraham declared righteous by God before or after circumcision? And the answer is before. Before. Before the giving of the law, before circumcision, before all these things. Why? Well, Paul's argument is because Abraham was gonna be the father of all who would have faith, whether circumcised or not, whether adherence to the law or not, whether Jews or Gentiles. See, it's, it's like God's sovereign and knows what he's doing, right? It's so cool when you see this. And that's what salvation has always been. It's always been salvation by faith alone. Point number one tonight is this. By the way, we've only got two points. You're like, wow, this is the long first point. See the glory of God in salvation by faith. See the glory of God in salvation by faith. This is what Paul was arguing. Because if it's not salvation by faith, if it's salvation by works, then God is robbed of his glory. If, if we don't need Christ, then God is robbed of his glory. Yeah, one of the, the, the questions, the apologetic questions, one of the stumbling blocks for people so often is, yeah, but why sin? If God is powerful enough that he could have just created a world and let us live in it and we didn't have any sin, why, why is sin in the world? Well, I think one of the reasons why sin is in the world is because sin necessitated the cross and the cross is the of the glory of God. I'll say that again. Sin necessitated the cross and the cross is the climax of the glory of God. 
Because with sin in the world, I can't save myself. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And I have to go to Jesus and, and say, Jesus, I need you and I've got nothing. I need all of you. Only you can save me. See, faith is the ultimate expression of our dependence upon God. And in that expression of our dependence upon God, God is glorified. And people want to say, well, doesn't that make God out to be just some egomaniacal figure that just needs the glory and wants all the glory? Yes, that's the definition of God. We understand that, right? If God is going to give glory to anything other than himself, guess what that thing that he just glorified is? God. The definition of God is the, the, the supreme being, the ultimate being, the, the highest of all conceivable beings. And if that's true, then the highest of all conceivable beings is, is due and worthy of all of the glory bar none. And so when God created you and me, when he created this world, when he created this universe, when he created everything, he created everything to glorify himself. And he did that through this story that you and I are living out that involves, yes, sin and pain and sorrow and hurt and heartache, but at the same time, it involves grace and mercy and love and the cross and forgiveness. See, God is glorified in salvation by faith. Sin didn't catch God by surprise. It was always there. The cross was always there. The cross was in view when God said, let there be light. He knew what was coming. Faith was always plan A for God. Never plan B. God has never once had a plan B. It's always been plan A. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the faith of the Old Testament saints. And at the end of this chapter, starting in verse 37, the writer says, they were stoned, speaking of some of the Old Testament believers, they were stoned, they were sawn, cut in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. They were wandering about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all of these, verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And so we look back at that chapter and, and it's listing off some amazing men and women from the Old Testament who just were rock solid in their faith, did phenomenal things, were strong in their commitment, in their belief, in their faith in God, had a faith that God had credited as righteousness to them. And yet the writer of Hebrews is saying, you and I have a step up on them. Why? Because they did not receive what was promised. Verse 40, he says, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What was the better? Jesus. Jesus. See, their faith was looking forward to what they couldn't fully wrap their minds around. They couldn't fully understand. And yet they just had to trust God. Now you and I get to look back on the cross. We're on the backside of salvation history. We look at the backside of the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ. And if they were here with us, what would they say to us? What a privilege that we have that our faith is so much more realized than theirs is or was. 
See, salvation has always been by faith. It's always been that Jesus is the object of that. Did they know the name Jesus? No, they didn't know the name Jesus, but they were trusting that God was going to undo what happened in Genesis 3.6. They were trusting in Genesis 3.15 that the the serpent was going to be crushed by the offspring of the woman. They were trusting in Genesis 12.3 that through Abraham's offspring, God was going to bless all of the nations of the earth. They were trusting that one of the descendants of David was going to reign forever and ever and ever. They were trusting that this suffering serpent in Isaiah 53 was going to come and bear the sins of many and he was going to be crushed for their iniquities. They were trusting all these things, though they they didn't know that the name was going to be Jesus. You and I know that the name is going to be Jesus. They didn't miss what God is doing. Have you missed what God is doing? Because you know the name. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. See, you and I are not a part of something new. We're part of something that's as old as the beginning of everything. The idea of salvation by faith alone in God's promises alone is as old as Genesis 3.15. You and I have just been grafted into it, something so much bigger than us. Look at verse 10. Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Oh man, that took a turn. Let's go back and talk about Abraham. I like Abraham better than curses. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. See, what Paul's doing here is he's calling us to remember the standard. He's saying, hey, here's the alternative. Let's talk about Abraham. Abraham's the the man of faith. But if you don't want Abraham, let me remind you of the alternative. If you don't do every single one of the commandments, you are under the curse of God. If you want part of the law, you're going to get the whole thing. You want circumcision, you get all of it. And remember in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount and said, hey, look, you've heard it said, but I say to you, don't commit murder. Okay, check the box on that. But have you been angry with somebody? Because the sin is the same internally. It's just one manifests itself on the outside while the other just stays inside and you just murder people in your heart. See, Jesus says, Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds those of the Pharisees who were the experts at keeping the law, the righteous of the righteous, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Paul here is reminding us of that fact. He's saying, look, if you want to rely on the law and you fail in one part, you're under a curse from God. We don't talk about curses very often, but it was part of the Old Testament language. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28. God said through Moses, see, I am setting before you, Israel, today a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you will obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods. Deuteronomy 27, uh, Moses says there, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. But it's not just the Old Testament that we get this idea of having to do all of the law. James picks it up as well. James 2, 10 through 11. James 2, 10 through 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one, one point becomes guilty of it all. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become, here's your identity, a transgressor of the law. You've fallen under the curse. The curse of failing to keep the law 
And that's why Paul says in verses 11 and 12, he builds on this. Look, you're, you're under the curse if you fail to keep the law, verse 11. And then it becomes evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. You're putting your, your confidence in your ability to, to be perfect. And Paul's saying, you can't be perfect. The righteous live by faith is what they live by. It comes from Habakkuk, that statement, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter two, verses three and four. Yeah, wow. Habakkuk's one of my favorite Old Testament prophets. It's amazing because Habakkuk starts out the book and he's like, God, I, hey, can, can we talk? Because I don't know if you've noticed, I know you're pretty busy up there, you know, sustaining all of creation and everything. But Israel's pretty gross down here, God. We've got sin running rampant. Nobody's following you. Nobody's obeying you. Nobody's listening to the priest anymore. In fact, they're corrupt. God, it's not a good scene down here. Do you mind doing something? And then God looks at Habakkuk and says, okay, man, sit down, buckle up. He says, because I'm gonna do something in your lifetime that even if I told you before, you would not believe me. He says, I'm gonna bring Babylon, the Chaldeans, and they're going to sweep in and they're going to execute judgment for me. And Habakkuk goes, wait a minute, God, maybe we misunderstood. No, we're, we're Israel, God. We're, we're the, the chosen people, the people that you bought for yourself, that, that, the, the, the people that you led out of Egypt. Remember, God, you, you remember that? That's who we are. You, they're more evil than we are. They're not the people of God. They're the, they're the Babylonians. You, you, you've got this backwards. And eventually Habakkuk is put in his place by God as God reminds him that he's God and says, look, Habakkuk, I will judge the Chaldeans. Don't worry about them. I'll get to them, but I'm going to use them as an instrument of my justice against you. But in that context, he tells Habakkuk this. He says in Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4, for the vision awaits its appointed time, this judgment. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. Habakkuk, if justice seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It's not going to delay. He says in verse four, behold, though his soul is puffed up and it's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul quotes that in Galatians three, verse 11. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall wait on the promises of God. The righteous shall trust God. The righteous shall trust in him for deliverance. See, all of us at one point in time have been guilty of trying to be justified by the law. All of us at one point in time have been guilty of, of picking and choosing the commandments that, that we find easy to keep or easy to obey. Or we've been looking at our lives and stacking up our righteousness against our sins and kind of going, well, maybe God's going to overlook my sins because look, I'm doing pretty well on my righteous front. But Paul's saying that's not going to work. Because if we are looking to the law to justify us, we are under a curse. In our infraction, our sin against God is massive. This curse is massive. It's a stain that we can't shake. It's like a murderer sitting in jail going, you know what, maybe I'll get off if they look at my tax records because I paid all my taxes on time. Maybe then they'll be like, oh, dude, he's a good guy. He paid all his taxes on time. Yeah, I know he, he killed that family, but it, he paid his taxes on time. It doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work that way in human courts. It's not going to work that way in God's court. 
We have been stained. We have been cursed. We need 2 Corinthians 5.21. We need the great exchange where Christ takes our sin and we get the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what Paul says we got. Look at verse 13. Galatians 3.13. Christ, what? What's the next word? Redeemed us. He bought us. Christ purchased us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. This is the cross that we talked about last week. The three hours where he took the full infinite wrath of God against your sin and my sin. Christ became the curse for us so that our faith could have an object that would save us. Second point tonight is this, make use of the costly gift of faith. Make use of the costly gift of faith. When Amanda and I were back in Arizona at our church there, there was this sweet old lady whose name was Marilyn. Just the nicest lady. She wore hats to church every week. And the first week I was there, she walked there, or she was there, she walked in, she sat down in the back of the church, and I was preaching that Sunday, and she pulled me aside, and she goes, hey, um, if we get up and walk out in the middle of your sermon, don't be offended. I'm like, oh, okay. And she points to her friend who was sitting next to her, and she was like, her ex-husband just walked in with his new wife. So that was my introduction to Marilyn. But Marilyn was just this, this nice, nice, nice lady, and we kept in touch with her after we moved out here. Um, but her, her son uh, ended up developing... Um, Alzheimer's at an early age and, and ended up passing away and dying. And her son had a guitar and that's all she told me. She goes, he's got this guitar and I, I think it's a nice one and I, I'm not going to have it. I'm not going to use it. So why don't, why don't you have it? She actually drove from Phoenix. She's like in her 80s. She drove from Phoenix out here to visit Amanda and I. And she gave me this guitar and she didn't know anything about the guitar. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, what kind of guitar is this? So I get the case and I pop it open and it's a Fender Stratocaster. Well, if you guys know what Fender Stratocasters are, they're not a, a cheap guitar. In fact, this one was like a super nice one. In fact, if you see Joseph on stage on the weekends playing a, kind of a cherry burst looking electric guitar, that's the guitar that I'm talking about here. Because when I, when I saw it, I was like, wow, that is amazing. And I don't have a use for it. I can put it in my office and it'll look pretty. And people will walk in and think maybe I play the electric guitar, and I, I don't. But I, I, it would go to waste sitting in my office. So I showed it to Joseph and, and to a few others, and Joseph said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll use it. And so now that guitar that Marilyn gave to me because she loves our family and because she thought she wanted us to use it in our church to have it, she gave it to me, and I said, okay, Joseph, here, you, you go take it and you use it because it's going to go to way better use with you up front playing it, using it, and it's part of our worship here, leading people in worship than it would be hanging on my wall in my office. See, too many of us leave our Christian faith hanging on the wall in our office. We see it, we're like, wow, this is amazing. This is so valuable. And Jesus died so that I could have faith that would save me. But we don't use it. It's like me with my phone and my laptop versus Pastor Rod with his phone and his laptop. 
I don't use it to the full capacity that I could. I'm not, I'm not a power user when it comes to my technology, but you and I, we can't afford not to be power users when it comes to our faith in Christ. We talked about it last week, the great cost of the cross, Christ redeeming us from eternity in hell. And here Paul's talking about this curse that he's redeemed us from. See, if you step on my toe, it may hurt, probably would. Wouldn't be my favorite thing in the world, but I'm gonna be able to get over that. Next time I see you coming, I'm not gonna be like, hey, toe stepper, go away. If you cut me off on the road, it's not gonna make me super happy. But next time I see you, I'm not gonna be like, dude, bad driver, go away. I don't want anything to do with you. But if you murder someone and then you come back around, that one's harder to shake, isn't it? That identity of, oh man, murderer. See, this idea that you and I have been cursed or fallen under the curse of God's law is that we are stained, we are marked, we are emblazoned as those that have fallen short, as sinners, deserving of the full wrath of God. And we can't shake that. But what Christ did on the cross is he took that from us. And he gave us his innocence, his righteousness. And now that's what we get to wear around. That's our identity. That's what we have. That's the faith that we have. And so how do we use that? What am I talking about when I say make use of this? I'm talking about this. How often do you thank God for your faith? Honestly, just praying, God, thank you for the faith that you gave me to believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. How often do you thank him that this is how he designed salvation? That it's not like Islam where I have to keep the law. I have to, to be obedient enough. It's not like Mormonism where it's salvation by grace alone after everything that you've done. It's, it's not like those things. It's no, it's you can't. You can't do it. So I'm going to give you Jesus and Jesus did it. And here's what I want you to do. Believe in Jesus. How often do we thank him for that? How often do you share the good news of faith? often do you tell people about what Jesus has done for you? How often do you beckon people to come and put their faith in Jesus? Because he's saved you. I've used the illustration before, but if somebody were writing checks to pay off your student loans and said, hey, go tell everybody that I'm here with a blank check and I'm willing to write you a check to pay off your student loans, you'd be going and telling everybody that you know. We need to be telling people about Jesus because Jesus is way better, way better than that. And then are you seeking to grow in your faith? And here's what that means. I referenced Hebrews 11 earlier tonight. Hebrews eleven thirty seven. 37, again, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, Jesus, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Then the writer continues, therefore, you'll recognize this part, maybe. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the Old Testament saints who didn't know about Jesus and yet endured and stayed faithful and lived obediently and lived expectantly and loved God even to the point of death. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the writer says, let us, you and I, now lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of of God, you see your faith in Jesus should cause you to want to live for Jesus. Not because I'm preaching to you that way. Not because you go to church. Not because your pastor tells you do this. Not because you want to be more acceptable. Not because you want to be more righteous. Not because you want to be more lovely. Not because you want to impress someone, but because you love Jesus, because without him, there's nothing. Without him, there's nothing. Without him, we're, we're stained, we're marked, we're cursed. Without him becoming a curse for us. So the question is, how are you making use of that faith in your life? How is it transforming your life? How are you a power user of the faith that God gave you in Christ to believe in him so that you would be saved from your sins, so that you would be righteous along with Abraham? Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to you and I, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So I ask you, are you a power user of your faith? Do you realize the gift that you have in your faith and how much it costs? Are you using your faith like I use my iPhone or are you using your faith like Pastor Rod uses his iPhone? If you're not, it's, it's just a convenient thing for you. It's just a pretty thing to hang up on your wall so that when people walk into your office, they'll look at it and go, oh, look at that, that's awesome. He's got a nice guitar, he probably plays it. Guys, I pray that if, if that's you, I pray tonight will be a, a, an impetus for change, a catalyst moment for you to say, I want to live like those Old Testament saints did as they were looking forward to Jesus, not even knowing that they were looking forward to Jesus. I know about Jesus. Now I want to live for him. Let's pray. Father, give us the ability to do that, the desire to do that, the, the hunger to do that, to live for you to be obedient to you, God, not and I don't, I, all the baggage that comes along with that word, but God, we want to we live for you. We want to align our lives with what you want our lives to look like because we love Jesus, because of the great cost of our faith, because of what he gave up for us, because of how he laid down his life for us so that he would take our sin, our curse, so that we might get his righteousness credited to our account. God, thank you for Jesus. Guard us against complacency. Guard us against familiarity. Guard us against cheapening 
the cross. Lord, thank you for the gift that is faith. Thank you that from nine verses after the fall, it's always been about trusting in your promise to deliver. And we know that one day our faith will be made sight and we will be with you. Until that day, we want to live for